the task old England is out to perform with Russia and France to assist. And some help now and then from the brave Belgian men. And it's this to defeat the male of fish. It's a terrible task and we had to combine. But together we'll wind up the one. Well, hello. Welcome to the American Writers, 100 Pages at a Time podcast. I know I've been uh, gone for a while. I mean, I've been doing the Lovecraft stuff, but if, if you're here for my main series, um, you know, then you haven't heard from me for a while. That's basically because I ran out of Library of America books in China, and with COVID, I haven't been able to get back to Taiwan and do my normal, you know, book swap that I do every three, four months. So anyways, that's all going to be over because I'm going to be back in Taiwan soon. But um, I did purchase one volume. It's not wasn't that much more expensive. In fact, it was kind of on discount, but they don't have much to choose from. But I was able to get a uh, the bookstore that I visit um, only had this book, which is Barbara Tuckman's uh, The Guns of August and the Proud Tower. And they had the Mankin Prejudices series, which I already have. So I wasn't going to buy another copy of that. So Tuckman it is. Um, so that's what I'm going to look at. So this will get me through about a, a month of episodes, and then I'll have to probably take another break unless I f find another volume somewhere that I can purchase. I'll, I'll keep my eyes open for that, but, you know, and then we'll get back into it. And I think what's going to happen when I get back to Taiwan is we're going to be looking um, perhaps at John Adams or John Quincy Adams' diary. I, I want to kind of go back to some of the founders. I also want to do African-American um, writing again there's you know i did a series very early in this podcast uh, actually a couple i did the harlem renaissance stuff and then i did a series on black writers at the turn of the century with charles chestnut johnson du bois and those people so um i want to go back and do this do the volume of the slain narratives i believe i have the frederick Douglass uh history autobiographies um I'm not sure. Maybe I don't, but I'll be buying some books anyways. So probably Frederick Douglass. I think I want to uh, look at maybe... Uh, I think I still have to do the other Zora Neale Hurston. I've been holding off on the Zora Neale Hurston fiction because it's it's written kind of in dialect, and I would like audiobooks for that, but they're not... Um, they're not LibriVox public domain stuff yet. Uh, there's copyright still in those books. Uh, so, but maybe I can track down an audiobook of the Her Eyes Were Watching God and some of the other Zora Neale Hurston books. Um, who else is there? I don't know. I want to do those, do those, and then maybe do some science fiction, do some of the weird fiction stuff that Library of America has been recently publishing. I don't know if that's too close to the Lovecraft series, though. So, but uh, I have some ideas of where I want to go from from here. Um, but so this is just going to be a placeholder. Let me get back into this podcast series that I that I enjoy doing much more than the the Lovecraft series. The Lovecraft series is a bit more of a drag because I'm, I'm being a completionist there and I like that but it's you know it wears down on you and I'm, I'm getting a little I'm getting towards the end of it but I'm getting a little also a bit tired of it so this is also a chance for me to slow down that a little bit take a little bit of a break and until I get back in the mood. I kind of feel how I did with Philip Dick at the end it's just like uh, you know it's a it just kind of goes on a little bit much. Uh, whoever talked me into doing that is um, it's partially to blame. Um, so anyways, 
what are we going to look at now? So, as I said, I have probably a month's worth of episodes, a little bit more, I think 10, maybe. Uh, 10 episodes I can pull out of this uh, Barbara Tuckman's um, two books by her. Um, she wrote, of course, a lot of things. She wrote a very famous history of the Black Plague. She wrote some other books. And so far, Library of America has only published these two volumes, The Guns of August and The Proud Tower. They really do go together. The Proud Tower deals is a series of essays doing with the fin de siècle of Europe um, and actually the world, because I think there's a chapter there about American empire, too. And then uh, that was written actually second, though. The Guns of August was written first. So we look at that one first. But that deals, as the title suggests, with the first month of the First World War, the Great War. So um, we only have these two for now, but she wrote many other things. She was a fairly famous historian from the 60s, maybe the most famous kind of public historian, like not really working in the strict academic history, history environment. She was like a popular historian, right? And one of the most well-known American popular historians. So, but she's a good historian too. I mean, she's not... Um, I mean, she does her research, right? She uses primary sources. So she's as much a historian as anyone who's kind of working um, exclusively for the much more academic uh, market. Um, she's, but yeah, she's she's in that more popular history. She wrote for popular magazines and things, but but a solid historian nonetheless and, and worthy of, of checking out. Um, thematically, we're going to be dealing with a lot of Euro European history, of course, because both of these books largely deal with Europe, although the Proud Tower does get into a little of American history. Um, but I think there are connections we can make to her life and in these books and, and why she was interested at the time. Um, I guess if you look at these uh, nostalgia cycles, right, you know, every... It's like we always go back 40 years, is it? Because, or is it 30 years? Because people in their, you know, when they mature, they have money, they have jobs, and they want to spend money on things. They kind of go back to their nostalgia, right? So that's why you get like 90s music is popular now before it was 80s music, you know, or you get Stranger Things and they get that kind of 80s nostalgia now. And I guess we're kind of going to be moving into 90s nostalgia soon enough, uh, just by kind of that theory. I guess uh, the 60s might, it's a little late for that, but it, maybe it's kind of a bit of World War One nostalgia. But I, I think there's more going on here. I think especially the focus, not on a whole history of the First World War, which of course many people have written as an interesting. There's so much great drama and moments like a, even a military history of the great war you know is is, is fun to read um <clears throat> but there's so much and it's of course been a bureau center of scholarship recently because of the 100th anniversary and just generally for good reasons historians have become increasingly interested in the great war um for a variety of reasons um i've talked several times about wastelands this book by uh what's his name pool this historian uh cultural historian who studied the origin of, of horror in the West and connecting it to the Great War. So there's a lot of good stuff coming out about the Great War. Uh, this was an earlier book, but uh, the point I'm trying to make is why focus on August, right? Why focus just on the first month of the war? And, and the book really truly is that. I mean, it's not just the title. It's There's a little bit on the lead up to the war, but she doesn't dwell on it. She doesn't, like you might expect... A bunch of drama and detailed analysis of like the Balkans crisis, um, of you know the effect of the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand. You don't get that. She just kind of skips over that. She 
just lays out what she needs to because her real interest is just the military and political moment of of august 1914 um and why is that interesting well it's a it's a moment when the world changed it's a very short period of time where the world changed overnight because a lot of people did a lot of made a lot of mistakes right so this um you know is written at a time you know 1862 when when brinksmanship is on the page you know from page i'm sure this book was being conceived of before the cuban missile crisis but the fact that it comes out that year is i think notable um and striking actually because it's you can see the parallels in you know what's going on in in the courts and in the governments and in the army commands in 1914 with you know the same kind of mistakes going on in the cold war politics of the time so I think there's there's that aspect of it too, so it's very very uh, of its time I think in, in that sense, and I think that's why she's interested in this. So maybe it's not responding directly to the Cuban Missile Crisis. She must have conceived of this book earlier, but I think it's talking about brinksmanship. It's talking about the you know the danger of of nation states with great weapons and great capacities to have weapons to you know to to, uh, you know, make mistakes and do things that seem right in the short term, but, but long term are wrong, to waste lives, to plunge uh, people into war recklessly for so-called national interests. I think that's very much on her mind here. Now, I ha- I, that said, I haven't read much of her work, so I don't know really where she might fit politically or, you know, her other values as a historian. I'm just jumping into the guns of August. Um, but I get that sense that she, you almost get the sense that she's criticizing some of the policies of the cold war. So, um, anyways, um, I was really tempted to actually read the Prada tower first. Cause even though it was written later, it chronologically, I mean, these books seem to go together so well, right? You read about kind of Europe at this peak of its civilization, but also at this very anxious moment, this turn of the century, this kind of uh, um, this this kind of apocalyptic moment, uh, and then you see the apocalypse, right, breakthrough, and then you know, and if you get that far, it doesn't really matter the rest of the war in some ways, right? There's of course a lot of drama and things that happen, but kind of the die is cast, right? And world history would would always be changed. So I think that's another reason to focus just on August is it's really just. That's all you need to see is the destruction. It's like when the building explodes, you only, the dynamite blast does it, even though the explosion may, you know, follow from that in a, in a complex way. It's once that button's pushed, you know, the building's doomed. Right. And that's sort of what happened to Europe with, uh, with uh, August of, of 1914. So anyways, I, I made the decision, the executive decision to just go with the guns of August first being the first to be written. And since I'm not really that familiar with Tuckman's work, I, you know, that's, that's what I decided to do. So um, the Guns of August is in three parts with a prologue. The prologue is a funeral, which is it's a nice moment of drama where you see all these European kings just a couple of years before war to the end would break out, you know, going to, you know, you know, at the funeral for Edward the Seventh in England, and they're all they all show up, right? Because they're all kind of related, and they all are part of the same elite culture, and they're all interacting, you know, in various ways. Kings in those days still had a lot of power and authority, even if it was being checked in various ways at different levels. Um, it's 
it's that it's like that calm before the storm sort of it, it, it does work really nice as an introduction but that's just like a prelude then we have a section called plans which basically looks at germany france britain and russian war plans so she doesn't look at austria hungary um that much which being so central to the start of the war so far she hasn't said that much about the austro-hungarian empire i don't know if historians would make this choice now um I think probably there'd be more interest in this Balkan environment and kind of Austro-Hungarians' plans to expand and rebuild their empire in that region. But she doesn't really focus too much on it. So they don't get a chapter. But the other four major belligerents get their get their chapters, each really dealing with what's their what's their agenda, what's their what are the war plans, what's going to bring them into the war. And by the way, I'm not going to go and re-educate you on this basic history you probably learned already right about the entangling alliances and you know how these tripwire events happen and spread uh we're not going to get too much into all of that because you should sort of know that i guess uh most people have some awareness of it maybe just you know i'll kind of go through it a little bit but it's it's not really going to be my agenda here to to teach you the origins of World War One, or the end of those debates. Um, what Tuckman's interested in is is the plans, the different agendas of the different countries. If you want to think of it that way, what are they after, and what would bring them to war? Right, um, and they're all pretty good. I think the the one on Germany is the strongest of these chapters. The one on Russia, maybe the weakest, because you don't get the same sense of you get more how Europe saw Russia than you get actually Russian policymakers and planning. Um, in the background then we have a section that's all i'll probably cover in this episode um uh, then we have a section called outbreak which is a very short section which just deals with uh, the the first days of the war the lead up to it um and again she kind of gets through all this really quick so this book's 500 pages and it takes her just 100 pages to kind of set it up um so again we're, we're basically her interest is august and the fighting of august so the bulk of the book um, basically 350 pages of it so about three episodes is just called battle and it deals with um you know basically those battles leading up to the marne and the not just the east not just the western front but also a little bit on the eastern front tannenberg is gets its own chapter here so um yeah that's what's going ahead so i'm going to cover go about five episodes uh, covering 500 page book here and see where it takes me so anyways, that's my introduction to the, the Guns of August. I haven't even finished reading it yet. I'm just uh, really excited to get back into this main main podcast, which is always my love. I know my Lovecraft and Philip Dick stuff tended to get more hits, more downloads than um, my main series, but I'm much prouder of what I'm doing here. I, I think I'm giving them, you know, it, it allows me to play with writers I don't normally read. It allows me to play with themes and think about things I don't normally think about. Um, and, you know, I just love the Library of America. I think it's such a, it's a national treasure, as I've said many times before. So, anyways, let's, let's jump into this book a little bit. Um, so, the, the first chapter, chapter one, which is really this prelude, is called a, the, a Funeral. And this is the funeral for Edward VII. And if you don't know these European kings, you know, who cares? I mean, some you definitely have to know, Nicholas II, the Kaiser, you know, uh, uh, Wilhelm II. You know, you, 
if you don't know them, you're going to learn them by if you read this book. You'll be you'll get a review of of these figures. I guess it's those British kings are the ones that you know are not always the easiest to keep straight. The King of Belgium, King Albert, of course, is a very important figure in this too. Um, you know, King Albert's been like so kind of become such a hero of the war for his resistance to to Germany, right? And it's his, his decisions were really decisive in bringing England into the war, Britain into the war, which of course was decisive in the outcome of the war. But, you know, wasn't his father like Leopold? He's got some bad press now with, uh, you know, the treatment in the Congo, and I'm sure King Albert continued those policies largely. Maybe not quite as brutal as, as King Leopold, but it's the same same dynasty, right? Um, but she's not going to get into all of that. I think she does mention once the, the Belgian Congo. But uh, anyway, my point is these characters, you know, even Theodore Roosevelt, Clemenceau in France, uh, uh, Edward VII of England, who, who of course dies, Wilhelm II, Nicholas II of, of the Tsar of Russia. In fact, she, he often just talks, she or she often just says the Kaiser or the Tsar. Uh, not even going taking them by name or calling them William or Nicholas sometimes. She doesn't always use the formal name. Um, and right away what you realize when you read this is just what a good storyteller she is. She really excels at this. This is really what popular historians can do that academic historians should be able to do but often can't. And, and I'll put myself in that list. I'm not the best at writing compelling like stories. It's It's so much easier to do the analysis, to to take the sources, to analyze them, and present your argument in a formal way. That's it's not easy to do, but it's much easier than than writing a compelling, dramatic narrative and using that to push your thesis. You know, it's easier to say my thesis is here's my evidence, and here's my charts, and here's the archival sources I used. To you know, make it dramatic is something that you know. Many historians don't don't do right. So we have TV shows with writers who read historical accounts, but then they they use their talents as a writer to make those things compelling for 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 listeners. It's 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 an impressive achievement here, I think, and I think it's a it's a model. It's a good model for for um, for historians to follow if they can. Now she gets she uses this funeral to to kind of introduce us to some of these people. Um, and she uses it to give us the zeitgeist of the time, which is, uh, of course, a tense moment. I mean, there was crisis in the air. People were thinking about this, but also there's still a lot of belief in this civilization. It's like the peak, the height of this civilization, right? Um, now, she talks about a couple books. It's, it's really fascinating that, 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 that a couple books that were popular at the time that fed into, I guess, two points of view about, about the future. Um, one of these books was called The Great Illusion by Norman Engel. Um, and this was an argument, and we still hear these kind of arguments today, right? Uh, you know, that war is impossible, right? We, we moved beyond war. Uh, people thought that after World War One, you know, that we'd move beyond war and we didn't. Um, people thought after World War Two we'd move beyond war and we didn't. Uh, and, you know, people said, well, the era of globalization, you know, great powers won't fight anymore. Well, what makes you believe that? I, when people talk about China and the U.S. and the potential of war, which you're hearing more about, obviously, now, and it's something, a real cause of concern. But you sometimes hear people talk like, well, great powers 
don't go to war. It's irrational to do so. It's, well, it's irrational for these people to go to war too. It's it's states don't always do what makes the most sense. Um, and that's part of Tuckman's argument, right? That they can look. All science can point to the inanity of war, and and people will still go to war. Um, so here's a bit what she writes about this. A new book, The Great Illusion by Norman Engel, had just been published would prove that war was impossible. By impressive examples and incontrovertible argument, Engel shows that in the present financial and economic independence of nations, the victor would equally suffer with the vanquished. Therefore, war had to become unprofitable. Therefore, no nation would be so foolish as to start one, end quote. I mean, how can you not read that and think of like mutually assured destruction, you know, and the confidence that people had that we got peace through strength and the confidence in, you know, we stop war by outproducing nuclear weapons, you know, like keeping one up of the Soviets or the other way around, the Soviets trying to keep one step ahead of, of the West in weapons development. You know, it's like, well, the war would be so destructive, both sides, no one would want to do it, right? Well, that's not very compelling if, you know, you look at the history. There were previous times where we thought war was in, impossible, right? Maybe even the Athenians before the Peloponnesian War thought, you know, now that we defeated the Persians, it's, and war is impossible. And of course, a war did come, right? Great powers fight wars. That's, that's what they do. And I don't see why we think that's going to be different in the 21st century. Um, but anyways, that's one book that's talked about here. And that's in the air. And that's, that's kind of the one sign of it. There's the, the funeral, all these different heads of state, all these different kings coming to you know, partake in this funeral, um, and you get the sense, oh, this, how could this break down, right? This is a stable confidence system. The other book, though, and it's not given as much attention as The Great Illusion, but that's The Germany and the Next War by General von Bernhardi. And I, he comes up again as one of the German war planners. And so this book, yeah, the Germany and the Great War, uh, or the next war, Germany and the next war, says that, yeah, there's going to be uh, another war. It's, it's chapter titles are the right to make war, the duty to make war, and world power or downfall. The argument essentially being if Germany doesn't fight a war, you know, it, it will decline as a great power. Right? War is a means to become a great power, um, which, again, the historical evidence is not bad for that. Look at Japan. Japan became a great power through two wars, the war against China and then the war against Russia, right? That's how it emerged as a great power. Um, Brit or Br Prussia became the great power in Central Europe, forming Germany through war, through three wars. Um, it's not hard to see that that's how you dislodge it, right? Like Prussia takes over leadership on the continent from France, you know, by through conquest, right? Um, England got its position as a dominant power through a series of wars, right? Uh, going back to the Seven Years' War, which we talked about in other series here. So, it's again, it's, it's what great powers seem to do, right? Um, so, these, there's the optimism in the air, but there's also this kind of pessimism of the Clausewitz and Darwinian kind of worldview, that, you know, the social Darwinian, I should say, worldview, and the ideas of, of Clausewitz, who's always like in the backdrop of the early parts of this book. Like, you, you almost want to go back and reread Clausewitz's work to fully understand. I don't know if people were more likely to have read it in Tuckman's time. Uh, you know, I read a very short introduction on him. I never read his on war. I do know that he's the guy who focused on 
like logistics and and kind of economies of scale in war like that. He focused more on the planning aspect of it, right? That it's not it's not just uh, the valor, it's not just bravery or courage or these things, which maybe help in battle, but really it's about the planning, right? It's about making sure soldiers have bullets. It's making sure food is delivered on time and ordnance delivered on time and all uniforms all fit. This is how you win wars. Um, he talks about other stuff too, right? Um, in that book, but I, that I always remember like was his main argument. And that's, of course, really influential for the German war planners. So with that, let's, let's jump into the section on plans. Um, as I said, there's four chapters on, in this subsection called Plans, and it basically makes up most of the early part of the book. Um, and we just kind of go around these great powers, just four of them, not all of them. And we don't get Turkey or Ottoman, or we don't get Ottoman Empire or Austro-Hungarian Empire's point of view. But we do get the other great belligerent powers. We don't get Italy either. Italy is just sort of mentioned as someone who... You know, the, the thing with Italy is the alliance between Italy and Germany, which existed at the time, was a defensive one. So by being the aggressor in the war, um, they had to be. I mean, it's, it's all worked out here. If you don't know the details of this, it's all worked out pretty well. Germany, you know, felt it had to, it had to engage, uh, do the Schlieffen Plan, which involved attacking Belgium and France. And it had to be done because of the war plans. Right. Again, this is stuff you learn in your world history or your European history textbooks. Um, if they're going to go to war with Russia, they had to go to war with France. And so they had to defeat France, which meant they had to be the aggressor, um, basically, if the plans were going to be enacted. There's even a great moment where the French, like where she talks about where the French withdrew troops from the Bel Belgian border because they didn't want to uh, like accidentally a French troop crossing the border. And then Belgium could say, ah, or your England could say, ah, we don't have to join the war because France invaded Belgium. They were that careful about it. They, you know, that there's so much importance in Germany uh, being the aggressor. Um, but that also meant Italy wouldn't be a, a, an ally in the war, right? I, I guess the German planners seem to know that. Um, but anyways, we get these war plans, or not, not just the war plans, uh, but also the, what they're after, um, and the, like the conflict, especially between France and Germany, the Alsace-Lorraine problem. Um, and some really stuff, I learned quite a lot actually looking at these uh, chapters. For instance, I didn't know that the Germans were actually willing to make a deal on Alsace to keep France out of the war. You know, they, at the time they were still thinking, maybe we can get a, a war in just in the east. There's a war against Russia, keep France out of it. Maybe if we give up Alsace, you know, in, in the end, the war planning, the, the Schlieffen plan won out and had to be enacted. But there was discussion of maybe making a deal with France to keep them out of the war. Um, there was some little bit of flexibility was, was suggested as being possible by Tuckman, even though it didn't um, um, unfold. Now, through all these chapters, Belgium is maybe like the most important place. It, it comes up in almost all the chapters as like a central part of the plans. Um, of course, that's all about the neutrality of England, right? If you sometimes think you got a triple entente and the central powers, right? The triple entente being France, Britain, and Russia. Well, really, only France and Russia had the the, the security arrangement. Britain had a like a they cooperated on like military exercises. Uh, I don't know if they had joint command yet, but you know they worked together militarily, and they thought they were going to be in the war against Germany together, but. Belgium was the, 
you know, violating the neutrality of Belgium was what brought England into the war, not, not their alliance with France, which was not not as firm as the one between France and Russia. So anyways, the first chapter, these titles are kind of good, though. Uh, Let the last man on his right brush the channel with his sleeve. This is uh, about essentially the Schlieffen plan and German war planning. Um, uh, so again, you probably know the Schlieffen plan. The basic idea is Russia will take a long time to mobilize, but they have a much bigger army. So we need to defeat France, which can mobilize much quicker and is closer to us. Defeat them quickly. Um, and the way to do that is doing the tactics of the Battle of Cannae. So Cannae, the, the Battle of Hannibal, the pincer movement, the attacking of the flanks, that's the strategic doctrine, right? That you attack the flanks, you don't attack the center, which is, I guess, a Napoleonic way of doing it. Like you bombard the center and march in. Um, no, you attack the flanks, right? Now, it's kind of funny that in the war itself, once you had trench warfare, you, there was no flank to really attack, right? You had to attack the center it's all the center when you have this trench warfare um so but anyways that was the idea to like attack the weak french flank they couldn't do the double pincer movement of Cannae. they had to go one way just because of the geography of it all but the idea was to swing around through belgium gobble up the whole army it's really idealistic that they thought they could pull this off gobble up the french army and seize paris within six weeks and that would give you the, the germans time to you know, pull, push back Russian gains in, in the East and then eventually defeat Russia later. That's the plan. And that's obviously what happened, except for the winning part of it. Uh, the success, it failed. The Sweden plan failed for reasons that I'm sure the rest of the book will get into. But the title here, Let the Last Man on the Right Touch the, the English Channel, whatever. Yeah, brush the channel with his sleeve is that idea of you just have this line of troops they even had the plans down to like how many troops per meter you know what the timeline it's it's really amazing how precise this was all planned out like how long it would take reservists to get to the front and get their uniform and get their rifles right and where they would actually be everything was planned down like microscopically um, which, of course, makes it that much dif more difficult to escape, right? I think that's part of Tuckman's warning to the modern era, is plans matter. They're not just constituency plans. They're actually how you're going to fight that war. Um, now, we'll get to the French in a little bit. The French seem to have a different whole perspective on this. But anyways, uh, that's that chapter. So this chapter is mostly on the Schlieffen plan, and you get a little bit of the drama about Belgium. They knew about it, obviously. Um, chapter three is called the shadow of Sedan. Sedan is of course the battle that decided the Franco-Prussian war, um, and led to the defeat, the loss of Alsace-Lorraine and the creation of Germany as a great power in central Europe. Um, so a very crucial battle, obviously in that war. Um, so this is dealing more with the French war planners. And of course the issue of Alsace and Lorraine, this irredentism, this desire to get it back, um, now, the French were a declining power, and the French knew it at the time. They, they seemed to know their demography. They weren't having as many children. You know, we think about, like, declining birth rates like in Japan or Taiwan or increasingly China as a place that's maybe reached their peak of power because of declining populations. And as population declines, you spend more of your resources on old folks' pensions. You don't have enough workers. All those demographic issues we know about. But 
France was sort of in that situation in the early 20th century, um, where family sizes were getting smaller. Um, but German family sizes stayed quite big. Uh, I think the population was almost double that of France by the by the time of the war. Uh, also, growing in economic might, Germany was. So, f how does fr how does France hope to win? Right. Of course, both sides are confident in victory, but the French war strategy seemed to have more of this Alan aspect. Right. This idea of you respond to what's happening on the field, and you respond with bravery and, and attacks. You don't overwork the plan. You don't micromanage the plan. Instead, um, right, the French spirit, the military spirit, would win. There, there's a wonderful thing where they try to, a uh, wonderful moment where you get some of the background of the, they try to reform the, the uniform because the traditional French uniform had this like bright blue and red and the feather and the cap and these outrageous hats and all that stuff. Um, it seems ridiculous for modern warfare, but the French liked it because it was like, that is our spirit. It's our spirit on display, and we're going to, uh, you know, that's going to help us win the battle. The Elan will help us win the battle um, and take this back. Um, and, and it seems kind of uh, silly, I, I guess, when you compare it to the German plans, uh, which, but, you know, which side won, I guess. And of course, France had a lot of help in that war, but... Um, but the nationalism here, it's even stronger than the chapter on, on, on about Germany. The sense of deep, deep nationalism shaping this culture. Even Victor Hugo here, quote, France will have but one thought to reconstitute her force, gather her energy, nourish her sacred anger, raise her young generation to form an army of the whole people, to work without cease, to study the methods and skills of our enemies, and to become a great France. The France of 1792. The France of an idea with a sword. Then one day she'll be irresistible. Then she will take back Alsace-Lorraine. Um, so it's not just about, I mean, partially it's irredentism, but it's also about reclaiming this leadership of, of the, like this deserved leadership of Europe, right? But the way you do this, the way you make up for your demographic loss or your industrial falling back in industry is elan vital, right? The, the will, um, And, they, and, you know, got to give it some credit. I mean, certainly for whatever failures France had during the war, lack of will did not seem to be one of them. So um, this chapter is really, really fascinating. I think maybe I had my, I was most, I learned the most from this chapter of these early ones because I didn't, you know, everyone sort of knows about the German war planning, but the French debate over how much war planning there should be and how much we should just rest on, on elan and, and energy and will um, I didn't know how deep that debate went so um, it's good um, some stuff about there were plans though so let's not deny that there were plans at work but you know they weren't I guess it's micromanaged and it was not as like Germans seem to just universally agree these plans are, are how it's going to be done but in France it seemed more conflicted um, Chapter four, a single British soldier is largely about, um, well, really it's about like British-French relations in the early 20th century and how they started working together on military planning and strategy um, and how, like the, what the French saw as British obligations to France in the event of a war. Of course, we get some, again, a, a discussion of Belgium and the place of Belgium in the, 
you know, as, as really the important place for this decisive, the decisive entry into the war of the of, of Great Britain. Like, listen to this. Uh, Belgium's rigid purity confirmed what the British never tried of repeating, tired of repeating to the French, that everything depended upon the Germans violating Belgian neutrality first. Never, no matter in what pre pretext, Lord Escher cautioned Major Hugh Hugnet in 1911, let the French commanders be led into being the first to cross the Belgian frontier. If they did, England could never be on their side. If the Germans did, they would bring England in against them. So a lot on that. But... Uh, Quite a lot of this has to do with the relationships between the British and French as they kind of formed this this alliance over the first decade of the 20th century. And then we got chapter five called the German steamroller. Uh, now, the metaphor here of a steamroller is how Europeans saw Russia. And in fact, quite a lot of this is about how other European countries saw Russia. It's that Russia was a flawed empire. Its military was was weaker the soldiers aren't as well trained it's not as well equipped and we we see how much less equipped they were uh, for instance i think i guess like every rifle in the russian army had 150 cartridges um planned with it but well in germany it was like 2,000 cartridges per rifle were planned for um so they get some of that stuff but really the steamroller idea is that once russia gets going though they'll be unstoppable they have like that manpower they can bring four million people onto the field uh within a few months so this kind of feeds back into the schlieffen plan and this awareness that we might lose territory in prussia from the german point of view but we'll get it back uh, after defeating france hopefully before russia can fully mobilize because once it does mobilize it will be unstoppable right Maybe this is the most wrong of all the assumptions made by these planners at the time, right? The Schlieffen plan, you know, it's, I guess it didn't work, but the fact, the way it was enacted, kind of enacted how it was planned, um, except for victory, the whole Britain joining uh, through a violation of the neutrality of Belgium was known. Uh, the French strategy is kind of fits what the planners were discussed as presented in that chapter. The the Russia Russia being the inevitable like great victor, um, just through its manpower and, and massive size, that might be the most wrong, right? Didn't like Russia basically lost the war in the first year, right? And held on, but then got had this the Russian Revolution, and eventually that pulled them out of the war. Um, but that never had like what's described here never never happens. Um, well, here it is. Russia began the war with 850 shells per gun compared to reserve of 2,300 shells per gun. I guess that's talking about artillery though. Maybe somewhere else he talked about the the cartridges. I forget where. But it's it's in here somewhere about just you know, how they were so f they they their whole mobilization was was a mess compared to that of what's going on in, in Russia or in Germany um, and of course we get some review if you forgot about that about the Russo-Japanese War and the impact that had on the Russian psyche uh, confidence in Russia as an ally there was even fears of Japan like invading russia going back in 
seizing more concessions from Russia if a European war breaks out. Of course, that doesn't happen. Japan joins the war on the side of the allies. So uh, I guess that's all I'm going to talk about here. Uh, this covers the first 85 pages or so. Um, I, this is because I don't want to jump it in the next section called Outbreak, which is about the first days, the, the immediate crisis that leads to the war. And then I'll get into the part three, which is battle, the war itself in the next episode. So again, this is good. The first of what are going to be five episodes about the guns of August. Having a lot of fun reading it. I'm learning a little bit. Um, and I, I recommend picking it up. I don't yet see anything distinctly American in her point of view, I guess. Uh, maybe the popular history is a very American genre. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe the whole Cold War backdrop, which is unavoidable, is maybe the closest I can get. Um, you know, like a lot of our writers that we talked about here, you get that sense that this is really not an American writer, right? They're, they're on... They're really talking about America. They're thinking about America. And she's obviously not. She's thinking about this European event and this European moment. But I'll keep my eyes open for, for if there's a distinctly American perspective in all this. Um, definitely she's not a nationalist. I mean, she's not, like, she doesn't have any investment in, like, German war guilt. Or, or she doesn't have any kind of irrational hatred of the Germans or any of the belligerents. She's, she actually comes off as quite objective here. Um, even as she's printed the whole thing as kind of a tragedy and a mistake. Um, so maybe that, that comes from her, her American roots. Maybe we should talk about Tuckman though, next time. I'll, I'll go through some of her, her personal history. I don't know that much about her, really. Born in 1912 in New York City. Father worked in a United Cigar Manufacturer company. Ooh, some interesting stuff here. So World War I somehow shaped her early years. She published a book about the Zimmerman telegram. That's before this. That'd be interesting. That's got to really be an American. That's about the U.S. entering the war, I guess. Um, uh, but that's not in this collection, so we just got these two. Uh, the Proud Tower and the Guns of August. Anyways, maybe I'll say a little bit about Tuckman next time. I'm not sure how much I'll have to say about the text itself. Uh, once we get into the military history, we'll see. It, it might, we might get into the situation where we did with Parkman, the Parkman series where some of the military details, are just not really fun or interesting to talk about on a podcast, um, on literature, but we'll see where it goes. We'll, we'll try it. So that's it. Once again, I'm really glad to be back doing this series. Uh, I've been away too long. Bad planning on my part. Um, so you can blame me. I, I wasn't quite, uh, the, I'm not the planner the Germans were uh, in, in the early 20th century. So I, I ended up short on texts. Um, but, but I got one now. So hopefully I'll get at least a good month of episodes about this. And it's, I'm really excited. Um, so... Again, thanks for listening. Uh, thanks for uh, being patient as I've been uh, getting back into this. Hopefully you've been enjoying the Lovecraft series. That's going to continue on for at least another... Um, it could be another year, actually, before I get all the episodes up because there's a lot of things to talk about, but maybe a little bit less than that. But it's, it's going to... I'm hoping to get all the recordings on that done 
over the, by the summer, the summer of 21. But as I suggested early on in this episode, it's kind of it's becoming a bit of a drag. So I may slow down my production of those um, now that I have other things to talk about. So anyways, th- thanks for always, as always for listening. You can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Uh, leave a review on iTunes. Uh, it would really be helpful to me. And uh, give me any suggestions you have for things I can read. Uh, what would you like to see next when I get back to Taiwan? And what uh, any themes you want me to cover? Uh, if you've read Bar- Bar- Barbara Tuckman's work, let me know what you think of it. And uh, maybe that'll help me kind of make sense of where she's coming from. So uh, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. When we wound up the watch on the line, when we wound up the watch on the line, press the paper once more we can sign. With assurance they'll hold till the sun shall so cold when we wound up the watch on the line.